This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mothers can be horny <laughs> and mothers can what? be. <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer. writer but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Jasmine Chan. Jasmine Chan's short stories have appeared in Tin House and Epic. She lives in Chicago with her husband and daughter, and her debut novel, The School for Good Mothers, was an instant bestseller. Welcome, Jasmine. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is so exciting. I absolutely loved this book. Yes. It it fed me in ways that I wasn't expecting, um, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. No, I'm I'm so excited to talk to you and to to meet some other Chicago writers by virtue yes. of of Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to read to us? I'm going to read from the middle of chapter one. So the School for Good Mothers is about a Chinese American single mom named Frida Liu who loses custody of her toddler daughter after having one very bad day and then gets sent to a government run reform school where she's re-educated with other mothers who've transgressed in order to get her daughter back. So um, it is as lighthearted as it sounds. <laughs> and the um, I'm going to read uh, two pages from chapter one that's uh, after Frida has had Harriet taken away and she's uh, gone back to her house uh, after having her very bad day. Tonight, again, Frida can't sleep. She needs to tell the family court judge that Harriet was not abused, was not neglected, that her mother just had one very bad day. She needs to ask the judge if he's ever had a bad day. On her bad day, she needed to get out of the house of her mind, trapped in the house of her body, trapped in the house where Harriet sat in her extra saucer with a dish of animal crackers. Gus used to explain the whole world that way. The mind as a house, living in the house of the body, living in the house of a house, living in the larger house of the town, in the larger house of the state, in the houses of America and society and the universe. He said these houses fit inside one another like the Russian nesting dolls they bought for Harriet. What she can't explain, what she doesn't want to admit, what she's not sure she remembers correctly, how she felt a sudden pleasure when she shut the door and got in the car that took her away from her mind and body and house and child. She hurried away when Harriet wasn't looking. She wonders now if that wasn't like shooting someone in the back, the least fair thing she's ever done. She bought an iced latte at the coffee shop down the block then walked to her car. She swore she'd come home right away. 
But the 10 minute coffee run turned into 30, which turned into an hour, which turned into two, then two and a half. The pleasure of the drive propelled her. It wasn't the pleasure of sex or love or sunsets, but the pleasure of forgetting her body, her life. At 1 a.m., she gets out of bed. She hasn't cleaned in three weeks. Can't believe the police saw her house this way. She picks up Harriet's toys, empties the recycling, vacuums her rugs, starts a load of laundry, cleans the soiled extra saucer, ashamed she didn't clean it earlier. She cleans until five, becoming lightheaded from the disinfectants and bleach. The sinks are scrubbed. The tub is scrubbed. The hardwood floors are mopped. The police aren't here to notice her clean stovetop. They can't see that her toilet bowl is pristine, that Harriet's clothes have been folded and put away, that the half-empty takeout containers have been discarded, that there's no longer dust on every surface. But as long as she keeps moving, she won't have to go to sleep without Harriet, won't expect to hear her calling. She rests on the clean floor, her hair and nightshirt soaked with sweat, chilled by the breeze from the back door. Usually if she can't sleep and Harriet is here, she retrieves Harriet from her crib and holds her while Harriet sleeps on her shoulder. Her sweet girl. She misses her daughter's weight and warmth. Thank you. Jasmine, reading your book, I was so, I mean, Lindsay and I have kind of been texting about it all week, but uh, from a writer's perspective, I was so impressed by the first four chapters and the whole book, but but the, I was thinking what a dilemma it would be determining what goes in those first four chapters, how to know if you have enough before Frida goes off to the school for good mothers. Uh, just, it seems like the entire success of the book kind of hinges on those first four chapters working perfectly. And I wanted to know if that was something that you had kind of early or if that if those first four were something that took a ton of work to get to get just right well thank you for the best compliment ever I really appreciate it (laughs) um the first four chapters definitely got worked on in a really different way um I will say I wrote the whole draft before I started revising and I like a maniac who didn't know how to write a novel after working on only short stories, I wrote my whole first draft longhand and then would type up the batches of pages. And then I didn't, I didn't actually look at anything until I got to the last scene. So that took like a year and a half. Um, And so probably hundreds of pages were thrown out from chapters one through four. Um, I, I definitely, wrote a lot of extra stuff, especially between like Frida and Gust and Susanna and other scenes with Will, other scenes with a social worker. Um, I think it was taking me a while to learn the rule that if you have characters in a pattern, you only need to have them do that thing once rather than mm. doing it 26 times. <laughs> so I, I guess what I what I wanted to do, the way I cut chapters four to five, was I, I wanted to anchor readers in Frida's story and who she was as a character and like get them on board, even, even if she does this actually dangerous, problematic thing at the outset of the book. I wanted them to be really invested in her emotionally mm. so that when you make the leap from chapters four to five, readers are willing to go with you into a slightly different world. The I, I definitely... Um, had to experiment with where to to make that leap because chap 
chapter four was followed by like an endless number of scenes of Frida's last night before going into school and like all these scenes with Renee. And I, I guess I'm, I'm of the mindset that it's worth it to write the messy draft to get to the material you need. I mean, there's such confidence in the way that you move from four to five because there's not even really the courtroom scene. There's like, mm-hmm. there's like a suggestion of Frida being called by the guard. And, and then you get a little bit of uh, retrospective summary in five about what happened with the judge who sound, you know, was a piece of work. But other than that, it's just like propulsion when you get into five, which is, I was just, there, there's a real confidence there. And I think that it's one of the things that really carries you through this novel is that you, you are, once you're in the school, you're in, you know, you're in a space that's familiar, uh, but repurposed. And that's kind of enough to get you in. And then you're really dealing more than anything with care, just characters and uh yeah there's such confidence in that move i loved it thank you so much i found myself marveling at at the way that you move time as well you're so deft in like leading us through these it's 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 a year it's basically a year um and you know you're you just lead us through the time so easily and so it looks so effortless you know as the reader. And, um, you know, cause I always think like, how would I do this? And I know that I would be spinning my wheels in those first, you know, those first four chapters forever and ever and ever. I was joking with Alex that I would have like one day at the school that would last like 150 pages. <laughs> and then, <laughs> Well, that is another way to do things. <laughs> that's true. And I, and you're just, it's, it's that sort of confidence that Alex is talking about that. You just, you move it and you move, you know, the characters forward, you move time forward. Um, you know, you don't give us, um, you don't give us like long scenes in the courtroom or with the counselor, you give us the way, the way that Frida would actually be thinking about it. You know, she'd be living her life and thinking about what the counselor said, um, you know, like living her life and reflecting on some major thing that just happened. Um, is that something that you've always been good at? I mean, t- teach us your ways. Oh, I love that you think I was good at it when a lot of it or truthfully was uh, a problem solving uh, strategy rather rather than an intention mm. because I I just wrote tons of garbage and then had to <laughs> had to get the the good material out but then have I had to try to construct it into scenes that would serve multiple purposes not just the present scene but also to fold in information mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm always trying to resist info dumps mm. in in fiction where you're just spelling everything out for the reader I I really like giving the reader some space to imagine the scene or the characters mm-hmm. or the the history and the feeling and with the the world building in the book I definitely just wanted to give a, a tantalizing hint and then let the reader imagine the rest so that's why there's a little bit of setting but it's not on and on and with the courtroom scenes I think the advice I got from someone who works in family court who didn't want to be acknowledged at all and didn't want me to cite him all. But um, when I talked to him, he said, you know, the more legal stuff you do, the more wrong it's going to be because Hmm. there's so many legal details that 
like I would never be able to portray accurately. Like in, in real life, there's not a hearing at the end and a hearing at the beginning. It's mm-hmm. like 85 hearings over two years. Mm-hmm. And each one has its own complicated name. And it's different for each state and each city and each um, county. So he he just said that like, just just have the bare minimum with the legal stuff. Like courtroom scenes are just gonna like, it's, it's just all gonna be wrong. Yeah. And you kind of trust that because you let Renee kind of be who Frida, you know, relies on for that stuff. Like Frida's not because you're getting it from Frida's perspective. So she's not going out and, you know, teaching herself the law. She's just kind of following along with what Renee's telling her. So you never, I never felt like, well, wait, is this how it really is? Or this feels. And also because you're suspending disbelief anyway, because there's this very recognizable world in which women are going to be sent off to learn how to be good <laughs> mothers. Um, you know, it feels, it, it feels like, well then, yeah, that seems like the system would, would work like that, you know, cause they'd be checking in on her at the school and she, you know, um, and, and I want to go back to what you said about how you wanted to make sure people were on board with Frida, even though she did this monstrous thing. Um, because I kept thinking as I read that, this book works because it's so immediately relatable. Mm -hmm. Um, The monster inside each parent, like each mother, um, our worst nightmare, just like a a small poor choice away. Um, Like I feel a low grade level of guilt at all times. Um, And um, that's when I'm doing my best. That's when I'm like the best Mm -hmm. version of myself as a mother. I feel incredibly guilty. Um, and as I was reading, I felt so gripped and I felt so, um, so guilty as if I, you know, had left Harriet alone. And I think that's because I know that possibility is within me. You know, it's, it's just a bad day away. Um, I I'm mothers are making impossible choices daily, you know, like it's, um, and I know rationally, I would never leave my, my children, but, but it's not, it's it's a human, it's a human thing to do. And what the book, you know, what the school for good mothers is arguing is that mothers should forget their humanity. Um, you know, how dare they be human? They're lucky to right. be mothers. Um, and you know, I, I found myself, I mentioned this to you that I, I started having dreams where my mother ease was bad and, um, I wasn't, uh, uh giving the right hugs. And oh, I woke- <laughs> I'm very flattered to have entered your subconscious. <laughs> oh my God. I woke up like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I, cause it's almost sort of like a comforting thought that you could go somewhere and you could just be told the right solutions for everything. And then you could just do it that way and it would be fine. Um, but it's so sinister to think that way. Um, you know, they strip the, the person from the mother. And, um, to me, that's the best, that's, that's the, that's the meat of a mother. Um, I don't know. I'm rambling. I don't, I don't have a question, more of a thought here. No, Um, I love, I love these thoughts that, you know, this is reminding me, my, my husband was, I don't remember it so clearly because uh, my book was edited during the pandemic. And so I I know that it got done because clearly it's been published, but the, (laughs) the process of it is a bit blurry because that was such a stressful time. But my husband remembers that when I was editing every time, every pass, when I got to chapter 17 and 18, I just kind of stopped sleeping and got really grouchy and, and was just very in it in a way that like made me, I think, pretty difficult to be around it's, it definitely gets, it just gets at you. I mean, it's, um, right down to the fact that the, 
the school for bad for good fathers um is so much less severe <laughs> you know the expectations on the fathers are so much um lighter than they are on the mothers um and i don't know it was brutal it was brutal jasmine did you always know that what frida would be going going away for i guess is leaving harriet for a few hours or did you have to kind of modulate what she actually did to walk that fine line between still being wholly sympathetic to the reader but also enough of a enough of a strike where it seemed plausible that she would have to to go to this school well technically we were working with both so i i I will say first that I I'm not someone who reads for sympathetic characters and like I it's something that I, I tend not to think about at all um, much to the chagrin Same, of my yeah. my editors <laughs> but there were two threads of inspiration so the the project started and I started um what what became the blueprint from the novel was this very dense short story that I started in 2014 and at the time I was in my mid 30s and it was time to make a decision for me and my partner about whether or not we were going to have a baby one day or um, choose a different path and just be artists and have a very nice life. So that decision was really weighing on me. So I was really thinking a lot about motherhood and ruminating and stressing out. And um, part of what my anxiety led to was this book. And the other big inspiration was a New Yorker article that came out in late 2013 by the journalist, Rachel Aviv, whose work I'm obsessed with. And it's called, Where Is Your Mother? And that's about a single mom who left her toddler son at home for a stretch of time. And after that one day, never got her, him back. Oh. And something, something about that story just stayed with me. I didn't take notes on it. I didn't think, oh, this will spark the creation of my first long project. It was more that I was just so angry on that mother's behalf. And I, I couldn't believe that she wasn't given a second chance when clearly she was trying so hard to do everything right. And I, I think part of, part of my, my anger was that, um, she was an immigrant and also a non-native English speaker, and she wanted her son to be in an Arabic speaking household. So it wasn't just that, her child was being raised by foster parents and like, she didn't know where, who these people were and um, where they lived or anything about his new life, but it also felt like they were erasing his, his ethnic identity. So, so those, those things really stuck in my mind. And I think also fed, fed into the start of this project. So I knew that I was going to write about a mom who left her child at home, but the length of time that she left her child at home and the reasons for that terrible mistake definitely got worked out over time. Mm. In my original version, Frida was more in a fugue state and just really lost it and decided to walk out the door and lost track of time. And in the, the version that we, we worked on, the, that I worked on with my original editor, Dawn Davis, um, we put a lot more emphasis on the pressure she was under it at work. Did I read that you um rewrote a lot of this after you had your daughter oh i had to rewrite the whole thing it's oh, very wow. it's oh, very wow. uh daunting to have written a book about motherhood before having a child and then realize oh i got like five sixths of this wrong so oh my god so, so I, what changed I think, 
Um, well, first of all, the, the draft was not completely revised yet. So, so I, I didn't have like a complete done ready to send to agents manuscript. I had a, I had my humongously long draft that I trimmed down to a sort of functional size and I was revising chapter by chapter. And so I was only, I think I was working on chapters one through four forever. (laughs) So those got worked on a lot, partly because I was, either about to have a baby or trying to start writing again after having a baby. So chapters one through four just got worked on so much, way too much. And I'm glad it, I'm glad it worked out in the end and that you like them. So I appreciate that. <laughs> but I, I think the things that I got wrong were I had the, I had the toddler speaking in full paragraphs, not just complete oh sentences. Gosh. They spoke in full paragraphs because I wasn't around toddlers. I had no idea that they barely talk. And I had things like the moms bathing the dolls in sinks because I didn't know toddlers don't fit in a sink. (laughs) And I had the moms like doing even crazier stuff. Like I had them running through actual burning buildings and doing doing, like like, extra crazy gauntlets. Like there were just so many gauntlets. I think that must have captured the feeling that I was having at the time. (laughs) There were just a lot of obstacle courses and a lot of gauntlets. And then I, I simplified a lot of the the lessons. And also I, I wrote in stuff from my daughter's infancy and toddlerhood. Like I didn't realize how much of my energy, my emotional energy would be spent dealing with food being dropped on the floor (laughs) And, (laughs) and the, the kind of ordeal after each, each meal. And so that got written to the book and, and also just the the process I, I wrote stuff like how hard it is to get a child out the door like I don't think I understood that before having a child mm-hmm. oh my god that is a daily struggle with with <laughs> and like my kids not to go off topic but I'm noticing that like it's time to get out of the car because we're at our destination but all three of them have to do some sort of bit before they'll move out of their seat so like my nine-year-old's got some sort of like you know inappropriate sarcasm probably about a body part or something. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, we have to explain it to my six-year-old who then wants to riff off of that. And then my three-year-old's in this phase right now where she processes everything, everything through her imaginary toy, Woofy. And so she'll be like, mom, Woofy told a joke about his penis. And then his mom <laughs> awesome. was like, and it's like, I have to, I'm sitting in the freaking parking lot, ready to go. <laughs> my children are not not getting out of the car anyway i i totally relate (laughs) no i have i have only one child and i know she's desperate for a sibling and i've just tried to explain to her that i am i'm just too old like i can't i can't can't produce a sibling at this point because i'm 43 and going on 44 this summer and so like that moment has passed and so she during the pandemic she started saying things like I want a real brother I want a real sister because she has like a lot of imaginary siblings yes but I I think I I didn't understand the daily battles over stuff like drinking water man or putting shoes on Mm -hmm. because I mean those are things that you don't experience as the babysitter right yes No. no and it's all about picking your battles right like I want to wear my Crocs in winter. And it's like, yep, cool. Will that get you to the car? Fine. (laughs) (laughs) You'll learn the hard way that you are going to be too cold. One thing that I do that apparently is you're not supposed to do is I totally bribe her with candy. Oh, please. Bribe, bribes have saved me so many times. 
but I, I feel like I bought that book, like how to talk. So your kids oh, will listen. And mm-hmm. I bought two, like both the little kid and the big kid versions. And I bought those at the start of the pandemic and I still haven't read them. Yet. You never will. You'll put those in the little library in the next year or so. And you'll feel really? so much lighter. <laughs> Yes, because we don't need that hanging over our heads. Okay. There's enough already. I think, but you I, know, the I think- funny thing is I only bought them because Lydia Kiesling recommended it in the New York times. Oh, and I yeah. thought, well, I really respect her as a novelist. So I'm going to buy these books, but then I still have, I've, I've even emailed her saying like, I, I want to read the books that you recommended, but I still haven't read them. <laughs> Lydia, why haven't you summarized them for her yet? Come on. No, Lydia Kiesling is like one of my favorite parents to follow on social media. She's great. Yeah. She's so awesome and relatable. Um, I remember her talking about that book for a while. I was um, following this woman, Amy McCready, and I still get emails from her. And it was about like, like not yelling, not getting to the point where you have to yell. I guess it's kind of the same situation, like getting your kids to listen. And I took like a, like a webinar on it and everything. Um, but then, you know, I just, it's, it's, we're tired. <laughs> yes. A good for you for taking a webinar. I have, I have not taken, I mean, clearly I haven't even opened these books that I bought, so I haven't gotten to the webinar stage, but I, I do, I do try to get a lot of parenting tips from Lydia's Twitter. Yeah. She's awesome. She had a tweet recently about, um, gentle parenting. That was hilarious. Oh, where they ended up standing in a ditch. <laughs> it was something about like, she sees these people that clearly learned about gentle parenting from like TikTok, And she's like, they could, their child could be in the polar bear enclosure and they'd be like, no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Which reminds me that the techniques that the instructors uh, are teaching in the school for good mothers are such um, like, like they would be very different if it was 30 years ago. Right. Um, and, and they're going to be different and it would be very different if it was like 30 years in the future. Right. Like, like they, they have this almost like a Montessori type, um, very boundary focused, uh, approach in the school for, for good mothers. Right. Um, even as they encourage their mother, the mothers to be boundaryless in, in certain ways. Um, what did you base their instruction on? Honestly, a lot of the instruction is based on things that I found annoying. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think it was I, triggering. It was very triggering, right? Like all those things they're asking the mothers to do. It's like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> so I, I came up with the curriculum years before actually being a mom myself. So the, the, the types of lessons actually stayed from that first draft, mm. um, partly because once I I developed how the plot points, like what was happening with Frida and the other characters would fit in with the lessons. I found it completely impossible to break that apart and redo it. Mm. So once I developed that, that initial foundation, I I stuck with it, but the things that changed were the lessons themselves. And so after being immersed in the very progressive, very involved uh, West Philly parenting scene, I definitely wrote some, some of my observations of gentle parenting and like into a, into a satire of gentle, gentle parenting, partly because I, I, it's not in me to do that. And, and I, I think I, it's, it's part of a larger parenting culture that, that really bothers me that, that mm-hmm. there's this one perfect way to do things. So, so my invention is to combine that with child protective services into this 
kind of Orwellian nightmare. Brilliant. Yeah, it's it's that sort of erasure of the of personhood that I was trying to get at earlier, you know, like um uh God, I think was it Jessica Gross just wrote about gentle parenting? I'll have to go back and look, but um where, you know, like you you need your kid to put their shoes on, you need their kid your kid to get the freak out of the car. And you can't, you can't just be like, get out of the car. You have to be like, I see that you don't want to be out of the car right now. Can you, can we talk about that? Like, what, what do you think it is that makes it that you don't want to, and you know, sometimes it's like, because I'm distracted and I'm three and I'm, you know, and we should be able to be, now I'm going off on parenting. We no, should the, be able I mean, to be ourselves, this right? Is, like this is the exact episode to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, why can't we just be ourselves and approach it, approach it as ourselves, but you know, in, in a way that ourselves would speak to a nine-year-old or a six-year-old or a three-year-old, you know, it's just, it's so much pressure. It's so much, um, like forethought in every moment. And I'm, I, I don't feel capable of that. Yeah. In some ways, I just want to have my shortcomings and just say like, well, sorry, we may, I'm, we, I'm an yeah, idiot. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, dad messed that up again. I'm sorry, but you remember, you you were laughing like five minutes ago. Come on. Like, let's just keep it going. <laughs> yeah. We would, we, we did, a couple webinars, uh, kind of in line with some of this stuff, you know, I don't even know what the fuck they were called, but they, <laughs> I don't know, gentle, per- gentle. Yeah. Well, like everything does <laughs> gentle, perfect parenting. And I remember just thinking like, I've been with the girls since 5.00 AM. We just got them down. I, there's nothing I want to do less than walk, watch this fucking webinar video please kill me. God. I know. I, I wait, but like, you both watched webinars. I feel so ashamed over here with well, my lack of study. Jasmine, it was I can't remember I what do. it's even called. I, I, I did not retain. So it's fine. Yeah. It was something I could do while I was folding laundry. It was like a pod. Yeah. It was like similar to listening to a podcast. Yeah. Um, cause uh, it was pre-recorded, so I didn't have to like raise my hand and ask anything. I could just watch. Oh yeah, it yeah. This was out. pre-recorded too. Yeah. This wasn't like a classroom setting. Yeah, webinar might be the wrong word. Video would be more accurate. But I, I applaud your I applaud your efforts. <laughs> I, I, gentle parenting was definitely the the dominant vibe. Um, in we're we're living in suburban Chicago now, but um, West Philly, a place that we love dearly and have so many friends, gentle parenting was like the dominant ethos, I think. And so I think we ran into issues where like if someone was hitting our kid on the playground, we would say, no, stop that. And like that is kind of not the vibe of Definitely that not other the vibe. Yeah. of gentle parenting. So <laughs> that. I, I think we were stricter and and more old fashioned in a lot of ways, and so that definitely made us have our own reflections over evening drinks and stuff. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to go back to this, but I can remember like growing up in my neighborhood, you'd get yelled at by any mom. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you just get like you they you couldn't get away with anything in my neighborhood like. Stop picking your nose, pick that up, go home, get out of my yard. Constant. You know, it was just like every mother up and down the block could yell at you, but you definitely can't do that now. Way. You, you, oh, yeah. Jasmine, was this the first um, long project that you, you took, took the distance that you went all the way with? Was it because um, you said you were working on stories before, were there other novel projects that you had been working on or were you really more focused on stories uh earlier in your career 
Well, I was always writing stories and the one novel that is very funny in retrospect because I did not go the distance with it. It's there's a, a hundred pages somewhere in my parents' basement where everything in my life is stored right now. <laughs> and it's about a, I, I think it's set in this like alternate reality Chicago where there's this old timey preacher and there's a birth cult where all the women are named Alice. <laughs> and Whoa. it's, and it, I wish I could tell you there was a plot, but I don't think there's a plot. There's more like a hundred pages of scenes and, <laughs> and like no, kind of no story whatsoever. And maybe no dialogue and no action either. <laughs> and just, <laughs> and just sort of atmospheric pages that go on and on and on with some beautiful <laughs> sentences, but it, it definitely, it, I, I think what I entered grad school, not actually knowing how to write a story with a plot. And oh, same. that had action or people I like I, I was very fond of people sitting in rooms staring at each other kind of stories before so it's, it's, you, funny, uh, it's funny to have like written a very plot driven novel because it no right. one would have expected this from me <laughs> who were you reading uh earlier on in your writing career that you that that made you produce 100 pages like that who were some of your your people at the time I mean I started out reading almost all experimental fiction. So, so I went to Brown, um, 96 through 2000. So I was like my, my second, my first ever writing workshop was there. And then my second workshop was a hypertext workshop. So, so I, I never really, I, I didn't read Alice Monroe until I was in grad school. I never read Lori Moore until grad school. And I didn't read Chekhov or any of the greats or like the classic uh, short story greats until grad school. So I, I started out reading Carol Meso and Robert Coover oh. and, oh, wow, cool. and like that, that's where I began. So, so I, I think what was exciting about beginning in the more experimental fiction camp is that I felt like I could do anything right. and I didn't, I didn't feel like I was breaking rules. Cause I just felt like everything was possible. I really, I, I feel like that's um, such a great way to start out. Did you feel like it was a good way to start out or did you feel differently? Um, I, I thought it was a great way to start out. I, I definitely, it was um, definitely an awakening when I went to, I think I went to Breadloaf for the very first time in 2007 and Sigrid Nunez was my workshop leader. And she told me that I needed to get in a genre. <laughs> and she said, like, <laughs> it's not quite prose. It's not quite poetry. It's not really prose poetry. You just need to, you just need to get in a genre. So I, I think that the stuff that I wrote would, would be more typically described as prose poetry before. So, mm. so writing stuff with action and momentum is, is something that was, was learned over time. What helped you get there with this book? What helped you get there plot wise? You know, the fact that there was a ticking clock built into the book just by mm. virtue of her counting down the time or counting how much time she's been away, mm-hmm. that I think helped me stay focused. And actually my my copy editor, Erica, is the one who fixed that because it turned out that I was counting the time incorrectly for pretty much uh, five years worth of <laughs> of uh, try- having, having written that ticking clock. She actually made a calendar and then figured out it was a genius move. I never, it never would have occurred to me to do that. So she made a calendar of all the events and the way that I accounted for them. And then she found all these mistakes. So, so copy editors really save your books. Um, 
I think some of the books that I read along the way that really helped me, I mean, I love Patricia Highsmith Mm. and I love the way um, she plots her novels. And I mean, I was actually probably reading more short stories and like short fast novels during the writing of this like I love the novel Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls oh yes which is a quite plot driven book but it's it's very slim and sleek Mm -hmm. and fast but it in folds a lot of life into it and I I love the short story writer Dorothy Norris and I was reading a lot of uh, her stories in the collection Karate Chop I I kind of want to talk about um one of the things I love the most as I was reading this book is how dark you let Frida go. Um, and, and, um, one of my favorite parts and Alex and I were talking about this earlier this week was you, the juxtaposition of the sex scene with Will and her C-section at her thinking about her C-section. Oh, I'm so glad you liked that. That was was really, that was really crazy to write. I really want to hear about all that. I've had, I had two C-sections and one of the things I love to like obsess over is how mothers endure things like that pain and how they they find their way through it um and I just want to I just want to hear how you how you wrote that scene I think that was another scene where it was trying to fold in information without it being like and then here's how her birth went um I like I'm I'm really not into the moments where you do a flashback and then it's it's just like, here's the info you need to know to understand <laughs> this, this key emotional moment. You, you, like, I, I, I don't have an example to draw on um, because I, I don't necessarily think like anyone should take down another writer's novels because all novels are so hard <laughs> to finish and publish. Yeah. But I, I, I like that's a move that I, I try to avoid the whole like, here's, here's the nugget that you need. So I was trying to build that into the scene but with a scene that was about something else but um it's certainly the c-section part of it was was definitely like based on my own experience with like having an unplanned c-section and I'd been in labor for 32 hours which began on New Year's Eve and New Year's Eve dinner so so it was a very dramatic start to um my year and we I think I it was just so so crazy because I'd been up for so long and then you're you're wheeled through the hospital like an episode of ER except it's you (laughs) that's being wheeled and so I yeah you're and you're awake for the whole thing which is so crazy but I mean we were in the hospital for probably like six days total in this little room and so at some point so my husband came and went sometimes but um he was stuck sleeping on they they give the partners this this thing that is not a bed (laughs) yeah it's it's like like, a chaise slash yeah 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 yeah. so it's it's something that a person can sleep on but not get any sleep so (laughs) so he was not getting any sleep either and then people were coming in to like poke at me every half hour it felt Mm -hmm. like and so it it very much felt like being trapped in this nightmare and so he at some point near the end of the week he said you know this really sucks, but this is great for your novel. (laughs) So, so we were, we were definitely gathering material all the time, but I, I think I, 
Yeah, I wanted to build in Frida's backstory without it having it be like a plop of black backstory. So I think that's that's part of where the scene came from. But I think with a, a I think what's been challenging in talking about the book is that a lot of the way I approach writing is just by instinct. And mm. so to ha- to go back and try to explain a, a logic to it has been um, a little bit false because I I I tend not to think about intention or theme or or, or strategies at all when I write. I'm just trying to sort of crowd, like push away all those thoughts and just go with the feeling and then figure out the reasons for it later. I love that. I think that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that because I feel like that some of the most raw, powerful moments can come from your instinct or from your subconscious, just trusting, you know, that you're almost like that, that your body knows what story that you're trying to tell. Um, and can mine, you know, for, for what, what goes where I love that. It's, it's kind of like how an artist would work. Right. Well, it's, it's definitely um, been a bit of a conundrum for my agent and editors when I'm like, I don't think about theme. I actually don't know what the themes are here. So, so that, that has proven a little bit tricky, but luckily I have a, a lot of expert guides who can help me articulate these things, even if even if my explanation is usually it's what I wanted to talk about or something no, I, like that. I, I relate to that big time. I totally respect that. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It's kind of like that David Lynch quote where he says, you know, you make a movie and you put it out and people want you to talk about it. And it's like, no, the movie is the talking. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the book, the book contains all the things that I wanted to say. And right. so, and so I've been, I've been doing my best to craft some kind of logical narrative around it, but it's, it's more that I, I tried out a lot of different ideas and I uh, pruned away the bad ones. I, I love that because it, it can feel so strange to have to articulate those things, right? That you're not ever articulating to yourself as you write. Um, I, I tried with Eat Only When You're Hungry. I tried to keep a daily diary so that I could remember because I remember with Ugly Girls, my first novel, being asked these questions and being like, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know? And I was like, well, maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I'm supposed to remember. So I will start keeping a daily journal as I write, eat only when you're hungry. And I never looked at it again. Oh, okay. So it, you didn't, <laughs> it didn't feed your pre-pub no, essays it, and stuff like no, that. No, nope. No, I never looked at it again. It's on like three laptops ago. So I know I don't even have it anymore. <laughs> oh, well. Um, what's it been like to be a bestseller? Oh, thank you for the most flattering question ever. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's thrilling in so many ways. I think what made all the events in January very surreal is that it was a during a time of like total isolation. So when my, so I, like, I, I think I understand that it has happened, but because we weren't actually seeing anyone, there was a certain degree to which I'm like, did I imagine that? Mm. Clearly it's, <laughs> it's on the internet. So it happened, <laughs> but my, my editor, Mary Sue Rucci was saying like, okay, you and my husband's name is Adam. And she's like, you, you and Adam have to go out and celebrate now. I'm like, okay, we're going to go sit in the living room and drink <laughs> prosecco in the, in a different room. But because oh, it, it was the second week of January. And so we were just like in total lockdown then. And mm. so I think the the thing that's really exciting now that there's been a little bit more time to process it is that I I wrote the weird book that I wanted to write and it it is not super easy um to say what it's about or like um 
or to explain like its marketability mm-hmm. and the fact that like a, a pretty weird out there dark book found an audience um, is is a very lucky thing. And I, I hope that I hope that in over time, I mean, I know the publishing industry always needs comps and we all need comps to, to sell our work. I hope that it makes it possible for for other writers of color, especially other Asian writers to write their weird books, too. I love that. Hello, yeah. I kept thinking of um, speaking of comps. I kept thinking of Sue Miller's *The Good Mother*. Oh, I, I read that. I read that based on um, I think Sam Chang at, at Breadloaf told me about that book, and so I, I read it years ago. That book, that book is very out there too. Yes, yes, and dark, and um, yeah, just like quite honest about you know these emotions that mothers have, and it's okay for us to have these emotions and mothers can be horny <laughs> and mothers can what? be <laughs> mothers can be wrong we can make mistakes uh yeah i i really hope that it becomes a comp for future book um as well yeah i did it so the one thing i will say about the new york times list i didn't know how statistically impossible it was uh, to to get on that list. Like we squeaked in at number 15 out of 15. And I was just so thankful that it worked out that way. But I don't think anyone told me that I was debuting in the same week as a new Daniel Steele novel. Oh my God. Or that the list would be like John Grisham and um Yeah, that list is crazy. Always crazy. Like that that particular week was like extra stacked with like all the people who've been on the list for 25 years. Like I think <laughs> Wally Lamb is on the list. There is oh the God. new, the new Outlander book and mm. Star Wars. And so, Jesus. and so the fact that we, we got on there at number 15, it feels kind of like a miracle. Yeah. God. Yeah. Sometimes I glance at that and I'm like, who? And then I'm like, wait, him still? Isn't like where the crawdads where the crawdads is it where the crawdads sing is that still on the bestseller list like I, I think it finally came out in paperback okay. <laughs> and so it's now just a mainstay on the paperback list oh my gosh did I, you guys uh, have a sense before the list actually came out that it was it, it was possible i mean you must have known a couple weeks out that pre-orders were doing really well or or whatever right i mean did you have some inkling that it was a possibility or I I think what made it feel possible was knowing that the Read with Jenna announcement was coming. And so I I think the fact that we made the list with a literary novel is partly because of like all the the big push from Simon and Schuster, but also reaching the Read with Jenna audience, which is is really spectacular and really fortunate. That's awesome. Yeah, that um what was that like? Oh, she's, she's really lovely. What I, I got to speak to her, um, not on camera in the control room for five minutes. And I just tried to fit in as many thank yous as I could fit into that <laughs> five minute segment. Cause I mean, like she, she really did change my life in so many ways. And like, I, I love the fact that her, her team chooses really cool books and to be in the company of the other read with Jen authors is amazing. I, I will say doing live TV from your living room is kind of terrifying <laughs> because you really, really, really need your Wi-Fi to work. Oh God. Oh, oh my God. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> oh, she's. Yeah. It w- I mean, it went fine, but I think at some point 
the audio, the audio started getting really glitchy and I couldn't hear what questions they were asking me. So I had to just try not to collapse and then just guess like, the, <laughs> like, Man. like they were asking like a, a long question. I could hear the beginning and then the end just kind of cut out and then it ended somewhere. I'm like, mm, I'm going to try to answer this sort of correctly, <laughs> but I don't know if it's going to be okay. So I was, so I'm, I'm told, I'm told that it was poised, but I'm like, but guys, I was having a heart attack on the set. <laughs> oh man. I can't even imagine. So it, it, it's, it, it went fine, but I think the, the, it's, it's very high stakes to, to log into live TV from your laptop. Oh my God. God. Well, the next time you'll be on the set. Well, we, we actually, they actually did have a lot of the read with Jenna authors over the last three years fly to New York to do um, like a special anniversary segment. So we were on the set out outdoors. So that was, that was really fun. Oh, cool. That's awesome. What, uh, this, this is the worst question ever. And I apologize in advance, but what are you working on now? Oh, I've, I've gotten used to giving my incredibly vague answer to this. So honestly, I'm working on book promo right now and I'm trying to just enjoy this moment and this, this aspect of the job, which is, I mean, something that I've been working toward all my life. And so I, I have not started working on new fiction just yet, but I, I think the thing that I'm trying to figure out for the the year ahead is how to do the online duties Mm. while still having my, my secret writing world. And I mean, I, I definitely have really appreciated connecting with everyone on Twitter and Instagram, but I think my brain is a little bit broken from using social media because I, I didn't have any, um, well, I, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad, um, I'm glad it's been, um, fruitful in some ways, but I, I think I didn't have a public social media account at all before selling my book. So I, I wrote, I mean, I have a like private Instagram, but I wasn't on Twitter at all before 2019. And so I, I had my own way of doing things before I had, was in charge of like posting a certain amount and like getting um, info out there. So I think in the coming months, I'm, I need to figure out how to dial that back while still like actually sharing information. Can you talk a little bit about like what you mean when you say your brain has been broken? Like how does that Oh, I could, I could talk to you for like five hours about that. (laughs) I, you know, I, the funny thing about Twitter is that the way I used to use Twitter, because I don't actually understand how to use it. I used to just log in for like 10 minutes each night. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would post the thing I need to post and then like actually log out. And, Mm -hmm. and so I hardly ever saw Twitter. I never knew what anyone was understand was talking about. So like book Twitter stuff, subtweets don't understand any of it. And so uh, because of that, no one ever saw my tweets (laughs) because (laughs) it turns out that you actually have to be logged in for the algorithm to like put your stuff onto other people's feeds. Because when I was just logging in for 10 minutes, like my, I think only my agent ever saw my tweets, but then if I stayed logged in, like hundreds of people would see each thing what so, that, that is that's crazy I didn't know that well I this is not scientific it, it could also be that like oh 
your book came out and more people saw your tweets then, or like, <laughs> like there, there could be like a lot of other factors, but I definitely feel like it's something that rewards your participation in it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I don't tweet very much and it's not nothing, I, nothing I post is like very fun or witty, I think is, is a uh, part, partly why, like, I, I can't really figure out how to how to make it work but i yeah twitter has definitely like broken my concentration in a lot of ways mm-hmm. i mean it's it's not like i'm even participating much in it but i i think having it open on my phone and knowing that there's always more information there like even if the new york times has not refreshed all their content twitter has <laughs> so yeah. so i i think i'm I, that that's going to require some like brain cleansing i mean instagram has always felt like a, a little more lighthearted to me because I mean, I like taking pictures. I like taking pictures of my plants and <laughs> I looking like looking at other people's plants and their beautiful homes and stuff. But I, I think Twitter has felt um, like a, definitely a little bit more anxiety inducing. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys think about the internet breaking your brain? <laughs> oh, man, I think I took a long break. I don't know, like a year and a half from Twitter. And I only got back on because Alex and I were starting this podcast and it was fine. Like I didn't, I, I, I was disgusted because of how Donald Trump was um, like thriving and flourishing on Twitter. And I was sick of kind of being part of the problem. And so one day I just left, I deleted my account and was like, that's it. But they give you, they give you a certain amount of time to come back. And um and I got, I got back under the wire, but the whole time I was off, I like, I, there's always this underlying fear of like, well, I'm going to be out of the loop. I'm going to be out of the loop. Right. Like I'm not going to be part of everything, but it's not true. Like you, you'll still be in the loop in the loop oh, that I'm, you want to be in. I'm on there every day and I'm not in any loops. <laughs> I never, I never have any idea what anyone's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just Sometimes. need like one person who knows that you can always reach out to. There's a couple people where when I have no idea, I'm like, okay, I have to ask so and so. They'll definitely know. So I so I am a total dinosaur with technology. So I, I wrote about robots, but I just don't know how to use Twitter or Google Docs or <laughs> I've have never used Siri. Like I just don't understand most machines. But want to give you an example of how I use Twitter. Um, the award-winning poet Keith S. Wilson, who was my tech consultant for the novel and helped me with developing so many ideas so he would he would tweet something and then instead of replying to that tweet I would text him (laughs) (laughs) so he 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 found that very cute and old-fashioned like 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 a grandma like a grandma uses twitter (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the right way to go well I I can't thank you enough for coming on um I absolutely love this book it was so fun to read, so dark in all the right ways. And I'm so excited for you. I'm so glad that it's reaching such a wide audience because it really deserves it. Thank you so much. I I read in between reading Jasmine's book and starting to read the book for next week, which is you had me at Pate Not. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's a a natural wine-soaked memoir by Rachel Signer. Is that right? Oh no. Um, I snuck in Antoine Wilson's Mouth to Mouth. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Speaking of short books and it was great. It's one of those books where you are watching two characters have a conversation and it's mainly one character telling a story and the other character listening and taking it in. And I love, I love that um, structure. And, uh, and then the ending, it just like turns everything on its head. Just the very last sentence. And you're like, Oh shit. So really enjoyed that one. How short is it? It's like 178 pages. Oh, okay. Really short. Cool. And the chapters are short. So like, as soon as a chapter ends, it's a page break and then another chapter. So it's probably, if you didn't do that, it's probably like 130 pages. Um, but really, really well-written, like captivating and just like fun to read. So that's my recommendation there. Um, and then I did start that memoir and it's, great so far so also really well written like beautiful descriptions of scenery and um i know that doesn't sound very exciting but (laughs) but i like that uh you've been sick yeah i've been sick i'm sorry it's okay i think it's the first time i've been sick in two years two and a half years that's i mean that makes sense because your your kids were pretty much home they were home until Till preschool and yeah, masks work. Masks so, work, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. No, it's uh, all good. I don't know. I don't have I don't know if I have anything else. I definitely don't have anything. I'm like fugue state. I'm like Frida in a fugue state pre-edit. All right. Bye. Talk to you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.